my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We certainly do have some very profound things to consider this evening. Uh, some from that reading, and then if time permits us, possibly we may be able to look at the first verse or two of the next chapter. But in any event, there are some very wonderful things there and some very tremendous lessons to be learned and to be applied daily in our own lives. But before commencing at the point where we pick up this evening, which is in verse 7, let's just quickly recap as to what has happened to David. You will recall that at the urging of his wife, Michal, and with her assistance, he escaped from his home when Saul had sent men to take him that they might kill him. From there he went to Samuel where he spent some time with Samuel at the school of the prophets. And there, to all intents and purposes, it would appear that Samuel and David sat down and spent many, many long hours together planning out the details for the kingdom and particularly for the temple worship that would not be established, of course, as we know, until after the death of David and Solomon came on the scene. From there, of course, he had to flee again and he then went to his friend Jonathan who pleaded very, very strongly that Saul really didn't mean David any harm at all until it was proven to Jonathan beyond doubt and then the two friends parted in a very touching and a very moving uh, closing meeting with the two of them in the last verses of chapter 20. From there, David was on the run once again and this time he fled to Nob. And in our last class we saw how he conducted himself there but in actual fact from stage to stage David was becoming more and more panic-stricken less and less thinking about the principles of faith and the principles of the truth and we saw that in the first seven verses of chapter 21 in our last class. We also looked at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ where he cites this incident in David's life and warns the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his own day that they should not pursue the Lord's disciples to the point where they could cause them to sin in a similar way. It's very important to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ did not endorse what David did, but he did warn against it being repeated in his own day. So with those thoughts in mind, we have David at Nob, we have him demanding bread, there was no bread, even the priests themselves, as we saw at our last class, were starving. They had no bread that they could offer to David. And so uh, they said, look, we've got no bread here except the bread that is upon the the showbread that is upon the table in the holy place. So David eventually, with a great deal of pleading, was given that. But we found in verse 7 that a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh. We spent a little time just thinking briefly about that because we know from our knowledge of Doeg that he was certainly no man of the truth. He was not a true worshipper of Yahweh at all. And so therefore he was there for some reason which is not explained. It may have been some kind of ceremonial uncleanness or whatever it might have been, but certainly Doeg could never be numbered among the true worshippers of Yahweh. We then learn something rather interesting about him that also conveys a very important lesson to ourselves. When it says in verse 7 that his name was Doeg an Edomite, Now the name Doeg is a name which means timid or sorrowful. And in actual fact he was the very opposite of this. That's not what he was at all. So 
as with his presence before the tabernacle, as an alleged worshipper of Yahweh, he was not really what he appeared to be. That really strikes a very important point for all of us. He was not really what he appeared to be. And when we link his name with his nationality, the expression that we've got here, Doeg and Edomite, we know that the word Edom is just very, very slightly different from the word Adam, and that it has the same meaning. It means red. So when we put his name with his nationality, we get this message. He appeared to be timid or sorrowful, but was red or of the flesh. He appeared to be timid or sorrowful, but he was really of the flesh. And you see, the lesson that comes home to us there is that we must really be what we appear to be. In other words, a facade of religious worship or piety is not sufficient. We may impress one another with that, but we will not impress Yahweh with that. Because as we've already seen at the very beginning of our studies on the life of David, in chapter 16 of this book, 1st of Samuel, Yahweh looks upon the heart. And so here was a man who was not what he appeared to be. But the very wording here reveals him for what he was. He appeared to be timid or sorrowful, but was really a man of the flesh. And so from that let us all learn the principle that we must really be what we appear to be. If we are true servants of Yahweh and we are striving to walk in the way of the truth and despite our weaknesses and the fact that we will fall from time to time as we find David here making some very disastrous errors of judgment, despite all that, Yahweh must be able to see us as men and women of integrity. And you know, really, when you come to grips with the real requirements of the truth, as far as God is concerned. He wants men and women of integrity. And integrity, I suppose, is really another name for honesty. He wants men and women who are honest. Honest in their dealings with God and honest in their dealings with their fellow men. So as far as we are concerned, we must be of that poor and meek spirit which Christ commended in the discount discourse on the, on the mount. And of course those qualities were quite unknown to Doeg. As far as Doeg was concerned, he took delight in reporting to Saul that David had been present at Nob, as we shall see in chapter 22 and verses 8 and 9. So he was intent only upon ingratiating himself with the king. And he would do that even at the expense of the life of an innocent man. Because if he was a servant of Saul, then he knew very well, like everyone else did, that David was not guilty of any crime. That certainly David was not guilty of death. And yet he would betray David without a twinge of conscience in any sense whatever. He would betray the life of an innocent man. So he was utterly without any principle. He was without true spirituality. And yet, he was close to the king. One of the king's close servants. So what does that say for Saul's character? That he would have as one of his chief servants a man of the character and the disposition of a doeg. We're told here in verse 7 that he was the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. 
And so David knew all this. And he would now know a new fear once he realised that Doeg was there. Here is one of Saul's most important servants right there at Nob. And David could be quite sure in knowing something of Doeg as he would have done that, that, uh, that, that Doeg would betray him. And so here is Saul with a servant who is a man with a characteristics with characteristics very much like his own. In other words, it stands to reason that any monarch, that, that any man, no matter whether, whether he be a, a man of principle or a man without any principle whatever, whether he be a moral man or an immoral man, he will gather around him people like himself. And we'll see that come out a little bit more fully uh, in the next chapter. But you see, David was very careful concerning the type of men that he had around him and the ones in whom he endeavoured to place some confidence. So David sought out men of the spirit, whereas Saul admired men of the flesh. Remember we saw that back in chapter 14 and verse 52, which is a very apt uh, notation to put even here against this seventh verse. Chapter 14 and verse 52, remember where he said, it was recorded there, that when he saw any man who was a strong, valiant, fighting man, he would get that man and put him into his army. So in other words, Saul had more confidence in the flesh than he did in Yahweh. And so David knew now at this point that he was uh, in some considerable danger. In fact, that comes out, if we have a look, just turn the page to chapter 22 and verse 22. After disaster has struck as a result of David's folly in this matter, he says to Abiathar, when Abiathar comes to him, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Just imagine how David felt about that. But for the moment, we'll look, we'll look at that in greater detail when we get to it, but for the moment what we're concerned about is the fact that David realised as soon as he knew that Doeg was there, what would be the outcome of that? And so in verse 8, David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Now no doubt, that question from David was related to the presence of Doeg. Because you see, David would have known Doeg, he would have known something about him as being part of the king's household and he would have known the true character of Doeg. So David had not only come to Nob unarmed, but now of course he felt exceptionally vulnerable. And of course the lesson there is that when we are in any danger whatever, first of all we've got to have the sensibility to recognise danger when we are confronted by it. And when it threatens what we must do is turn to the sword of the Spirit. We must turn to Yahweh when danger threatens and not put any confidence in the flesh. So David gives this very lame excuse, I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons because the king's business required haste. So Ahimelech replies to that in verse 9. The priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, there is none like that, give it me. And you know, the wording of the priest there is almost as though we get the impression that 
What he wants to see is David leave that place. He was not comfortable with David being there. He was suspicious of the story that David had told him. It's almost as though he's saying, look, here's the sword, take it and go. Take it and go. Because he could see that there was danger there. He knew what Saul was like. He knew what Doeg was like. And he knew that there could be a dangerous outcome to this whole incident. And so here we have the sword of Goliath and we have it in the tabernacle wrapped in a cloth. You know, every other time that word cloth occurs in scripture, it is rendered as garment or raiment or clothes or clothing, something to that effect. So in all probability, it was Goliath's own military cloak. Remember in chapter 17 and verse 54, it says that Goliath's things became David's property. So at some time that is not recorded in the Samuel account, David must have uh, presented at least the sword and possibly the main military garment, the main military uh, coat, uh, to the priest of the tabernacle, perhaps as a thanksgiving offering. Now he's going and asking for it back. And the priest said, well, we've got it here, and it is behind the ephod. And it's interesting that the word ephod is an untranslated word. In other words, that's how it is in the Hebrew. It is a Hebrew word that has just simply found its way into the English language, like the word amen. It was a kind of a frock garment that was worn by the priests. And it's described in Exodus 39 and verses 4 and 5. And of that particular garment, which represented the glory of the priest as Yahweh's representative, Brother Robert Roberts says in the Law of Moses, it was the most complicated, beautiful and significant of all the priestly garments. And behind that, and rightly so, behind it was the sword of Goliath. When David hears that the sword of Goliath is there, he says there is none like that. Seems almost like a, a voice of reverence. But you see, was David now at this point thinking of the great victory that Yahweh had given him over Goliath? Commemorated in two great Psalms, Psalm 8 and Psalm 144. And remember also that David must have himself been a very strong very big man to even think of wielding the sword of Goliath. Just a passing point there in regard, regard to, to David's own physical status. But he says to the priest, give it to me. The sword of the Philistine against whom Yahweh had given him the victory. But what was David thinking at this time? under all this enormous pressure that he was placed under. Did he appreciate the significance of what he was doing? Did he appreciate that this sword represented the sword of flesh, which all the armaments of Goliath represented, which David, with the aid of Yahweh, had been able to destroy? Did he realise that he was taking up a sword which typified the flesh to try and use to protect himself if it was needed at that time. And with that in mind, look how it begins in verse 10. And David arose 
and fled that day for fear of Saul. Now you see, in spite of all these events and circumstances, there's a question that's got to be asked right here. As we read these words, David arose and fled that day. David arose and fled that day. Here's the question. Where was Yahweh? Where was Yahweh? Had he given any sign, whatever, that he had forsaken David? You see, what was happening to David was happening with a full cognizance and knowledge of Almighty God. We need to note against that verse, Acts 14 and verse 22, which we have turned to time and again. It's the verse in which Paul reminds us that is, it is through much pressure that we must inherit the kingdom of God. I've said on numerous occasions that that word must there means exactly that. It is through much pressure that we must inherit the kingdom. In other words, Paul is saying there's no other way that we're going to get into the kingdom other than under pressure. Our faith will be put under pressure. And it's by having our faith put to the test and put under pressure that we will develop the faith and we will develop the characteristics that will make us pleasing and acceptable to Yahweh despite our failings, despite our failures time and time again. And we cannot escape the reality of this. You see, really what we've got to see here is that it is necessary to understand how flesh reacts when pressured against the truth. You see, David here is giving in to the weakness of the flesh. Instead of throwing himself at this point upon the mercy of Yahweh and saying as he looked at that sword, Thou didst deliver this giant Philistine into my hand. Thou art able to deliver me again in this time of trial. He doesn't do that. He says, give me the sword. I need it to protect myself. Now let's see a wonderful lesson in this. Let's go for a moment to the second of Corinthians. I want to show you what Paul, how Paul reacted under very similar circumstances. Not quite the same, but there's not much difference when it comes to the question of pressure. We're going to look at a couple of passages here. In the second of Corinthians, chapter 1, first of all, verse 8 and verse 9. Then chapter 2 and verse 13. But first of all, chapter, chapter 1, rather, I think I might have said chapter 2 anyway, chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 9. Now he's telling the Corinthians some of the enormous pressures he's been under. In verse 8 he says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble." which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. You see, what he's really saying there is that at that particular time, well, while he was very busy and he had a lot of work to do in the truth and enormous responsibilities, he must have been extremely ill at that time. He was very, very sick to the point where he even despaired of life. He thought that Yahweh might allow his life to be finished and his work left undone. Imagine how he would feel under those circumstances. Pleading with Yahweh to give him more life because there was so much else left that he had to do. 
But as if that wasn't enough, look at chapter 2 and verse 13. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. Titus had gone missing. He didn't know where Titus was. We could go all through those things that there, the pressure that was mounted upon Paul. But when we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, look what he says. This is Paul's reaction under those kind of, of appalling pressures that have been mounted upon him so that he could easily have been panic stricken. He could easily have turned away. He could have easily dropped his bundle, as we would say today. But in chapter 4 and verse 1 he says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, like saying, seeing we've got this responsibility that Yahweh has placed upon us, as we have received mercy, we thank not. Despite all those circumstances and all those conditions, he says, therefore, seeing we have received this ministry, we thank not. And it's like a way of saying, we haven't thrown in the towel. We haven't given up. We haven't thrown it all in because it's got too hard. And the pressures have been too great. We've got sick of it. Not Paul. He says, we thank not. See the determination in that man. And yet here we see David, where the pressure at this point is becoming too great for him. And you see, there's another key phrase in verse 10 there, of that 21st chapter, he fled that day for fear of Saul. And though our hearts are heavy with sympathy for David, because none of us know how we would be able to handle a situation like that, Certainly I don't think I know as far as I'm concerned no better than David did at the very best. So our hearts are heavy with sympathy for David and none of us would perform any better than he did. I'm quite sure of that. But yet you see at that moment his mind was more filled with fear of Saul than it was of faith in Yahweh. And you know brethren and sisters one of the great problems that we have in life is that very often when we get under a great deal of pressure, as David was here, and we've seen Paul and how he was able to withstand that pressure with a faith that was absolutely incredible. But when we get under a great deal of pressure, so very, very often we see the problems as being greater than the power of Yahweh to deliver us. So often we do that. And you know, sometimes, for example, we are faced with perhaps illnesses in our lives. The younger ones among us tonight may find it difficult to understand what I'm saying now, but I ask them to remember what I'm saying for later on in life, for to see the importance of what I'm saying. We sometimes find that we may have certain symptoms of a disease that could be very, very dangerous or damaging. And we go to our doctor and our doctor puts us through certain tests and procedures and so forth that may go on for days, sometimes perhaps for weeks. And we have this doubt, we have this, this danger hanging over us all the time until it's finally resolved. And hopefully we finish up going back to the doctor and the doctor is able to tell us 
that the tests have proven negative insofar as his fears were concerned and that we are quite alright and that we have something wrong with us that will pass fairly shortly and we should be alright after that. But during that time, during that time of waiting, just imagine the faith that is required. Not simply a calm faith, but a faith of this kind that we will say to ourselves, well, in all these things, as with all the affairs of life, we are totally in the hands of Yahweh. That's what David should have been saying. We should say, we are totally in the hands of Yahweh. And it's in his power to deliver us from this physical complaint, whatever it is. Or if that is not in accordance with his will, and this is going to prove something terminal that will end our lives, then his will has got to prevail. Now it is not easy to develop a state of mind like that, but that is the mind of faith. And that is the mind that Paul showed under those incredible circumstances and pressures that he was under, that he conveys to the Corinthians in the early chapters of that second epistle. And so here we find David in verse 10 of this chapter, and it says that he fled that day for fear of Saul. It does not say with all his trust and his confidence in Yahweh. That comes later. But at the moment he's under this enormous pressure. And it says that he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now he's got Goliath's sword in his hand. And where does Goliath's sword lead him? It leads him home to Goliath's hometown, to Gath of the Philistines. An astonishing thing. Here is Yahweh's anointed going to the hated Philistines for protection and safety. And yet it shows fearfully how a man may be driven by fear. And remember, that's what it says in that verse, for fear of Saul. And fear can be a terrible thing. Fear can be a most shocking thing. It's one of the worst of all human emotions because it tends to break us down on everything else. It is one of the greatest enemies of faith. If our fear becomes greater than our faith, then our faith dwindles. And we may reap the consequences of fear rather than a faith. Fear is a terrible thing, a fearful thing. And so he comes to Gath, which was the first town of the Philistines on the Israelite border, 29 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So David, in effect, because he was not thinking clearly, took himself from one dangerous situation at Nob to a far more dangerous situation at Gath, which he realises in verse 12, too late. That is too late to make a wise judgement and a wise decision as to where he should have gone and what he should have done. You see, David was at his wit's end. He was at his wit's end. But that is the very time when we need to try and make a calm appraisal of our situation and a calm appraisal of our absolute faith and dependence upon Yahweh. 
There's a very sobering lesson in that. And what an incredible irony there was in this. David going forlornly, tramping his way into the city of Gath to the king of Gath. And I want to tell you something about the city of Gath. There would have been many widows and orphans in Gath who had been made widows and orphans by the sword of David in his battle and fights against the Philistines. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Yet he goes to that very place where his name was hated. He was known there, as we shall see. He was known, they knew who he was, and he was hated. He would have been more hated than Saul. And only the hand of providence could have kept him alive in that place. Nothing else. Only the hand of providence. And he came to see that later. But right now he's not seeing anything very clearly at all. And so in verse 11, the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Is this not David the king of the land? As soon as he came there, his presence was noticed. And they would use that word king in a, in a loose sense. They would use it in the sense of the fact that he was a man of, of authority or power among the Jews. So, they ridicule him. The servants of Achish said unto him, uh, that is due to Achish, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? They knew what he had done. And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So now David knows another kind of fear, a different kind of fear that he had known at Nob. And now he is reduced to this state, hoping to be saved in Gath, the city of the Philistines. But look at verse 12. David heard all that was said about him. And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And rightly so. And the Jerusalem Bible renders it, David pondered these words and became very frightened of Achish, the king of Gath. Now, when he had left Nob, he left because of fear of Saul. Now he comes here, and of him we read, he became very frightened of Achish. And he was very sore afraid. And next to that we have noted a proverb. Proverbs 29 and verse 25, which says this, to be afraid of men is a sneer. He who puts his trust in Yahweh is secure. Now, if you turn it up, you'll find it a little different because that's the rendering from the Jerusalem Bible. But that's what, how it renders it. To be afraid of men is a sneer. You see, that brings home to us the question of fear. 
and how if fear becomes too great and fear dominates our thinking and causes us to become panic stricken so that we turn to the left, we turn to the right, we look behind us, we look up, we look anywhere to try and climb our way out of trouble, to do something. We become panic stricken because of fear. But while all that fear is dominant, where is our faith? Where is our faith? And that's what the proverb says in the Jerusalem Bible rendering. To be afraid of men is a snare. It will catch us. It will hold us. It will entrap us. But he who puts his trust in Yahweh is secure. In other words, it doesn't really matter what happens to us. Whether it is the will and the purpose and the wisdom of Yahweh that we should be delivered or whether it is in accordance with his will that we should not be delivered. Our lives, day by day, are in his hands. And we have to learn to trust that. It's not always easy, but it's necessary. We know that. We know that faith is not just simply what we believe. But as you've probably heard me say many times, when it gets down to the the nitty-gritty of it, faith is really... What we do because of what we believe. In other words, faith must be a working faith. We must display faith in action. A theoretical faith will get no one into the kingdom. Because you see, that's where Acts 14 verse 22 comes in. A faith that is a theoretical faith is not put to the test. So we need to remember that while fear in itself is not necessarily a sin, it is certainly a grave human weakness. And the fact remains that fear may so weaken our faith that sin may result. That's why we have to be very careful. You know, in Psalm 34, it deals with this situation that David is in here. Psalm 34 was written concerning this very dangerous predicament in which David now found himself. The, uh, if, you, uh, if you notice the heading to, uh, to Psalm 34, if we just turn over there for a moment, we will make a reference to it a little later on, perhaps if time permits. But in Psalm 34, if you notice the heading to it, which incidentally is taken almost verbatim from the, from the Septuagint version, which means that in all probability it dates back 300 to 400 years before Christ and therefore is in all probability quite reliable, although not inspired. It says the Psalm of David, when he changed his behaviour before Abimelech, or Achish, who drove him away and he departed. Psalm 34 is dealing with that. So, when we study Psalm 34, we find it's quite obvious that David wrote Psalm 34 much, much later. He didn't write it at that time at all. He wrote it much, much later when he reflected back upon his entire experience and was able to see the way in which Yahweh delivered him out of that impossible situation. You would think that if there was one thing that the Philistines of Gath would have wanted to do to David, it would have been to have nailed him up on a tree in such a way that he would have died very, very slowly and suffering that they could drag out of that man's body. But they didn't do that because Yahweh was with David. But David wasn't thinking about Yahweh being with him. 
Psalm 56 also appears to be related to this incident. It's interesting that the superscription in the Septuagint version to Psalm 56 reads in this way, For the end concerning the people that were removed from the sanctuary by David for a memorial when the Philistines caught him in Gath, which appears to show that they took him prisoner. That was why he was in this building where we find him in verse 13. And so in verse 13 he realises that something must be done to get him out of this mess. But he humiliates himself in what he does in verse 13. He changed his behaviour before them and feigned himself mad in their hands. The phrase in their hands incidentally is another point that indicates that they had actually taken hold of him and put him in some kind of a prison. So he changed his behaviour before them and feigned himself mad in their their hands and scrambled on the door of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Rather interestingly, these words changed his behaviour are identical in the Hebrew to what we just read uh, as, as the heading to Psalm 34. They're the same words. But you see, he decided to act in such a way that he might be able to fool them into leaving him alone to seeing that he was just simply a hopeless madman. And you know something about that incident? It's a little bit embarrassing to read about David behaving like that, isn't it? He feigned himself mad, scrabbled on the doors of the gate, let his spittle fall down upon his beard. But what he did physically there was really very much an indication of his state of mind. That's what he was mentally at that time. We don't find him, for example, like Jeremiah under very similar circumstances, where Jeremiah, thrown into a dungeon, unconscious, awaking in a great pool of his own blood, turns his mind to prayer, And through prayer and a consideration of one of David's very psalms, he strengthened himself for that which awaited him when he was released from the prison. That was Jeremiah. But you see what fear can do to us. What can happen to us when we become panic-stricken? So he scrabbled on the doors of the gate. Rotherham renders it, he struck against the doors of the gate as you can imagine a madman doing. He kept drumming and hammering on the doors. And one wonders whether David had been giving some thought to the ravings of Saul and perhaps decided that he might imitate the raging mental instability that he had himself recognised and seen and witnessed in Israel's king. What a humiliation for David to be doing the same thing. But in verse 14, Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad, wherefore then have ye brought him to me? It's very interesting, isn't it? He could have so easily have said, Well, look, we realise he's mad, but take him out and nail him up somewhere and see that he has a slow, painful, agonising death, because we owe him that. And that's how the mind of the flesh would work. 
And that's what normally would have happened to David under those circumstances if it had not been for the guiding hand of providence who would not let them do that. Why have you brought him under me? The heading to that psalm, Psalm 34 that we mentioned, is a little bit illuminating here because it tells us something that we're not told here. You might have noticed when we read that title that it does say that Abimelech drove him away and he departed. The Septuagint renders it, he let him go and he departed. Which was an incredible thing. But that should have ever happened at all. If there was one man you can imagine that the Philistines would have loved to have captured on the field of battle and taken him back home to any one of their five cities and strung him up, dragged him on a chain through the streets to the cheers and the jeers of the Philistine population, it would have been that man David. But there was a power there working for him There was a power there preserving him and delivering him out of that situation that he was so panic-stricken at the time that he couldn't even recognise it. And you know, we do the same thing. How many times have you ever been in a situation in which you have not known what to do or how to handle a matter and you have prayed very, very earnestly to Yahweh for deliverance, if it be his will. And then in the course of time, something happens and the problem disappears and all of a sudden everything is back to normal. And you don't even think about it. It's happened to me a lot of times. And then much later, much later I think back upon that. And I realise what has happened and I feel a very deep sense of shame as well as gratitude. But you see, these are all things that we learn from David here. We all have to live our lives day by day. We have to face our trials. We have to face our pressures. We can't avoid them. They're part of the way that leads to the kingdom of God. So we must expect them. As Brother Purse Mansfield used to say again and again and again, none of us are going to get an armchair ride into the kingdom of God. I can always remember him saying that, not once but many times. None of us are going to get an armchair ride into the kingdom of God as though we accept the truth and then feel, well now because we've come into the truth, God's got to do his part now and all we've got to do is sit back and wait for the Lord to return and be very thankful that he can have us in the kingdom doesn't work that way. David found that, found that, and we all find that. And so in verse 15, Achish says, Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So you see, Achish became tired of David's ravings. And then he turns round and berates his servants for even bringing David near to Achish. And Achish became convinced that David really was bananas. He really was nuts. So he says, shall this fellow come into my house? In other words, are you asking me to accept a raving lunatic in my presence? 
And so upon that basis, mercifully, under the guiding hand of providence, David was sent away. He was sent away. And we need to remember that David was not a man who revelled in sin. David was not a man who enjoyed sin or who, who enjoyed weakness of faith. He repudiated sin. He aspired under holiness not to sin and yet like us all, David was a man of the flesh by nature. And he had all the weaknesses and the pronenesses to weaknesses that we all have. And the development of many a sin takes place when the flesh is literally weak. As David's was here. But yet contrast that with the Lord Jesus Christ who in the wilderness of Judea spent 40 days and 40 nights without any literal food whatsoever and yet was sustained by the food of the word of God. And they said to the Lord Jesus Christ, command these stones to be made bread. And he could have done it. No problem. But do you remember his answer? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of Yahweh. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. So here we find David sent in disgrace and humiliation the people jeering him, sent dejectedly out of the city of Gath. And in this sense, he becomes a type of Christ, which might sound strange at the moment, but he becomes a type of Christ in the sense that he had become despised and rejected of men. In his case, it was of his own doing. In the Lord's case, it was not of his doing at all. And again, like the Lord, who had not where to lay his head, according to Matthew 8 verse 20, David was in that position as well. He didn't now know where to go or where he was going to finish. But now, without the sword of Goliath, which it's quite evident the Philistines would have reclaimed, he is now led by the invisible hand of Yahweh and he is led to the cave Adullam in Judea. But his faith was put to the test. And you know, Psalm 88 and verse 6 summarises David's position at this point. He had been laid in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps, and that's Psalm 88 and verse 6. Sometimes we get very close to that situation too. And yet David's faith was going to redevelop now, as we shall see very, very shortly. And again we learn the lesson that when we are confronted with some great trial or some great danger, we must act. We must act by putting our faith and our confidence in Yahweh but we must also try and act with calm, sound, reasoned judgment. And you see, David had done all these things and he had started off with quite sound, reasoned judgment. 
in going obviously to the most important man that he should have gone to, and that was Samuel. He was still using confidence when he went to his great friend Jonathan to try and secure help and guidance there. Still acting with wisdom and faith. Still acting with wisdom and faith when he went to Nob because the high priest was the next most important man in David's life. But by the time he gets there, he's in such a panic-stricken state that all these other things develop out of that. But you see, David recognised later on, as we should all recognise, that he needed his weaknesses to be exposed. He needed them to be exposed. He needed to recognise them himself because Yahweh was moulding in that man a character that would be fit for the kingdom of God. Look at all the great people of Scripture that have found themselves in similar circumstances. Look at the life of Joseph. The years of trial and anguish and suffering before he was finally vindicated. But look what came out of it. The salvation of the entire nation. The entire nation was delivered and kept alive because of the faith of Joseph. Look at Jacob. What did he say to Pharaoh in Genesis 47 and verse 9? Few and evil had the days of the years of my life been. Few and evil had the days of the years of my life been. But that man will be in the kingdom. Because in the midst of all those trials and those difficulties and those problems, they learn to develop faith. Let's have a brief look for a moment at Psalm 142. I'd just like to comment on this psalm in relation to David's circumstances here. You see, he has now come to the cave when we come to Psalm 142 and that's where we're going to find him next. Notice the heading to the psalm, Maskil of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. And this is what he had done after he left Gath. I cried unto Yahweh with my voice. With my voice unto Yahweh did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me? I looked on my right hand and beheld that there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my life. I cried unto thee, O Yahweh. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my life out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. And Psalm 142 represents the turning point in David's mental approach to this whole problem and this entire trial. You know, brethren and sisters, we might perhaps conclude tonight with the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8 because certainly these apply 
These words apply in a great exhortation. But every one of us have read time and again, but let us apply these to the circumstances in which we have seen David this evening. In Romans 8 and verse 36 to 39, these are the words that Paul has penned with his own sufferings and his own trials the way in which people had humiliated him, the way in which they had beaten him, persecuted him, the pressures that had been mounted upon him. He says in verse 36, against all that background, it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I am persuaded. See the firmness of his state of mind. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those words represent the epitome of a living, working faith. And we want to emphasise the words in verse 39 when Paul says, nor any other creature. In other words, all the things that he has listed, doesn't matter what it is, death or life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, death, anything, doesn't matter what it is, nothing can keep us out of the kingdom, including any other creature. The word other is the important word. Any other creature. Meaning that the only one, the only being, who can keep us out of the kingdom of God is ourselves. No one else. So therefore we need that virile faith. We need that childlike faith and confidence in Yahweh our God. We need that trust. We need that willingness to commit our cause every day of our lives into his hands. And pray, not my will, but thine be done. And to develop the faith for which David was really so famous. And rightly so. But tonight we have learned from some of those pressures that came upon him. And the difficulty that he had in exercising his faith when the pressures were very, very great. He was a man just like us, but a far greater man than any of us will ever be. I think that's a safe thing to say. But let us remember that on the basis of Psalm 142, we are able to appreciate that sanity prevailed, that as he marched away from Gath to the jeers and the shouts of derision of the Philistines, he is praying in those very, very wonderful and remarkable words of Psalm 142. 
I cried unto Yahweh with my voice. With my voice unto Yahweh did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. I cried unto Yahweh. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. 